0: is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thanks, Olaf, and um, thank you for coming. I, I've prepared a written paper which may give slightly misleading impression of uh, complete coherence, whereas what I'm offering instead is a series of reflections. Um, Although I chose the title Refugees, What's Wrong With History as a kind of play on words, you know, what's wrong with the history of writing about refugees, perhaps, but also, you know, so what's wrong about putting history into refugee studies? As I was preparing my thoughts for today's seminar, <clears throat> I watched reports and read of the efforts of thousands of refugees to reach a place of relative safety by negotiating the hazardous passage across the Mediterranean from ports in Turkey and Libya, and of those who perished in the attempt. And I began to wonder how these events will be analysed in years to come. Will future scholars attempt a social and cultural history of the journeys that refugees made? drawing perhaps on the oral testimony of survivors? And will this be written up as a history of ordeal and pure loss, or of adventure and opportunity? Cultural historians might seek to engage with Mari Nostrum, the name given to Italy's search and rescue mission, and its replacement by the more restricted programme Joint Operation Triton, named after the Greek god, the messenger of the sea. How much attention will come to be devoted to the aspirations of these refugees and the families they left behind? Or will the political considerations that determined the miserable response of EU states come to play a more important part in the story? Maybe the passage of time will enable the future historian to make something of the fact that far more people drowned in the Mediterranean in the course of 2014 than lost their lives on 9-11. Perhaps historians will locate today's calamities in a broader history of encounters and enterprise in the Mediterranean, the Great Sea, to which David Apolafia has drawn attention in his book, where he puts human agency at the centre of the historical narrative, proposing an alternative reading to that of Fernand Braudel in his classic study of the Mediterranean world. Maybe they will connect these crossings to the islands that play a part in the history of 20th century displacement, such as the island of Stromboli, location of the classic film by Roberto Rossellini, Stromboli, 1950, which tells the story of a young woman, played by Ingrid Bergman, who ends up in a displaced persons camp in Italy, where she is befriended by and then marries an Italian prisoner of war who takes her back to his fishing village on Stromboli. For those who don't know it, it's conceived as a powerful psychological portrait of the disillusionment and torment inflicted by a different kind of confinement in which the active volcano is both a symbolic and a very real presence. Or we could think about Cyprus, whose significance in refugee history derives not only from the mass displacement that was associated with the War of 1974, but also from the fact that it housed British-administered camps for Jewish Holocaust survivors and refugees who were trying to get to Palestine. This history can be written as one of determination on the part of Jews to find a secure place in which to live but also as a study of external intervention, including the intervention of American psychiatrists who were trying to determine the mental health and potential citizenship qualities of Eastern European Jews prior to their admission to Palestine, Israel, or the USA. On the other hand, it may be that historians will pay no attention whatsoever to the Mediterranean moment, deeming it to be merely episodic or surface noise rather than a fundamental component of conflict in the modern world. Part of my talk is an attempt to suggest why this pessimism may be misplaced. To stay for a moment with contemporary events in the Mediterranean, the way in which the crisis is portrayed certainly resonates with a historian of refugees in the modern world. Few reports in the media in 2014-15 omit to mention the possibility that armed jihadists were likely to have hidden themselves in the midst of desperate asylum seekers, raising the ominous possibility that each successive boatload brought a fresh security threat to Western European shores. I reminded myself that every 20th century refugee movement was accompanied by comparable invocations of apocalypse, whether these reflected fears about political stability, especially fears of communist infiltration, or the health risks posed to host societies by refugees. What next occurred to me as I thought about Mediterranean journeys was the place of the sea in the history of mass population displacement in the modern era. I'd already been thinking about the multiple connections between oceans and population migration in the light of Sunil Amrith's impressive recent study, Crossing the Bay of Bengal, which demonstrates the active participants of migrants, refugees included, in seizing economic opportunities and helping to fashion regional societies and states. Other oceans then began to intrude in particular the Atlantic, whose history is inextricably bound up with slavery, but whose significance for the historian of refugee movements emerges in a recent doctoral dissertation by Rosie Rickett, who considers the journeys made by Spanish Civil War refugees who fled to Mexico and Argentina in the late 1930s. She draws attention to the political and cultural meanings they ascribed to this transatlantic passage, noting in passing that securing a place on the boats was more difficult for Trotskyists and anarchists than for other leftists. Refugees here spoke of carrying Spain in their arms and turning the voyage into an intense affirmation of their determination to regroup rather than succumb to permanent defeat. I'd also like to refer to anthropologist Linda Mannix's recent book, which draws upon the surviving photographic record of 350 Estonian refugees who fled to Canada in 1948. In contrast to those who attempt the much shorter journey across the Mediterranean and place themselves in the hands of people whom they barely know... These refugees formed an incorporated company to pay for the refitting of the old minesweeper, the SS Walnut, to transport them from Sweden to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where they were held for a month in detention centres before being granted asylum. The Canadian media at the time construed this group as docile, northern and white and as victims of communism, arriving in, quote, little Viking boats, in contrast to refugees who later faced a more hostile reception, including uh, Tamil refugees in 1986, and before the Second World War, Jewish refugees on the St. Louis, which was turned back in 1939. This hasn't prevented Canadian politicians and others from incorporating the experience of Estonian refugees into a narrative of Canadian humanitarianism and multiculturalism. We therefore have multiple historical connections. One is the association made by Estonian refugees with other episodes of displacement, as in, we were the first boat people... Another connection is with the discourse of generosity that rests upon a selective appropriation of history, and even with the idea of porous borders, as in the reference to Viking boats. Manik thus locates the experiences of Estonian refugees in a larger framework of cultural representation and immigration policy. She demonstrates how Estonians were quite capable of holding a negative opinion of subsequent refugees, whom they deemed to be economic migrants, whereas they were political refugees, even though this was not, in fact, an accurate description of their own status, since they had the option of remaining in Sweden. The idea of describing themselves, or being described as boat people, was contested. Some elderly Estonians and their children rejected the analogy I think, said one, of the Vietnamese who came, and we were not like that. The Atlantic Crossing thus conveyed ideas of a heroic expedition, but it also carried an unfortunate association with those who, in their opinion, had a less genuine claim to asylum. I mention these books partly because of the maritime association that was triggered by media reports of the cross-currents of migration in the Mediterranean, to which of course one could add the Pacific and the South China Sea, but also because they seem to me to point the way forward for historians who seek to put refugees closer to the centre of modern history. Thinking through oceans is a very good example of how to acknowledge, but also, as Phil Marfleet has urged, to problematise the nation-state as the fundamental point of reference in historical accounts of the experience of mass displacement. I say acknowledge rather than refuse the nation-state in this context because of the ways in which powerful states perceive of themselves as island bulwarks whose protection is deemed to trump that of today's boat people, Australia being an obvious case in point. But I say problematize because oceans, as in Amrit's work, direct our attention to networks and connections that transcend national frontiers and that are, of course, formed and reformed by virtue of arduous physical labour as well as fresh feats of imagination. At the same time, my opening remarks point to the fact that dramatic moments such as these, so costly in terms of human life, frequently fail to show up on the historian's radar. It's striking how little attention is given to refugees in general histories of the modern world, although Mark Mazoa's Dark Continent is a notable exception. Where refugees do make an appearance in the pages of history books, there's still a tendency to portray them as miserable flotsam and jetsam, as inescapable victims of war or revolution, and not as agents of change. It's as if historians are only slowly waking up to the crucial insight that emerges from recent scholarship in the social sciences and political sciences, namely that states make refugees, but that refugees can also make states. And this seems to me a compelling reason to put refugees into the mainstream of historiography. To be sure, there is a history of refugee history. It stretches back at least as far as two eminent Russian-Jewish scholars, Eugene Kulisher and Joseph Schechtman, whose work is familiar to specialists, although it's been overlooked by most historians. Kulisher wrote a very informative account of population movements in early 20th century Europe and Schechtman brought his knowledge of European history to bear on contemporary population movements in South Asia and the Middle East with a series of books in the late 1940s through the early 1960s. Kooliger in particular tended to regard refugees as victims of war and revolution, although his semi-Malthusian approach also led him to ascribe population displacement to ineluctable demographic forces. But Kulischer fell out of fashion as ideas around economic development and population control provided a way of surmounting the Malthusian trap. Meanwhile, Schechtman concentrated on what he termed permanent constructive solutions rather than palliative measures, organised population transfer being one possible solution. He nailed his colours to the mast by arguing that resettlement and integration, rather than repatriation, offered the best way forward. <clears throat> and he was particularly dismissive of Palestinian claims to a right of return. But Schekman's overview <clears throat> is interesting on two counts. First, because his argument implied that history ought not to weigh heavily on the mind of refugees. In other words, that they should transcend the past in order to concentrate on their future. And secondly, because of his willingness to provide a global and comparative perspective to population displacement, a way, so to say, of joining the dots. And I return to that point later on. So there was a kind of momentum to refugee history around the middle years of the century. The problem is that it seemed to run out of steam. Apart from the classic overview by Michael Maris on the refugee crisis in 20th century Europe, most of what stood for refugee history in the second half of the 20th century derived as a kind of byproduct from the literature in refugee studies. Aristide Zolberg's classic co-authored study, "Escape from Violence," showed how refugees were associated with some of the transformational moments in modern history, but historians took little notice of it. And this neglect doesn't appear to have changed with the advent of new work in the expanding field of global history, with the possible exception of Dirk Herder's magnum opus on world migration since 1650. If Zolberg and his colleagues concentrated on geopolitics and addressed political scientists in the first instance, then Rony Hirschhorn's ethnography of first, second and third generation refugees from Asia Minor pointed not just to the legacy of Lausanne, but to the ways in which refugees made a meaningful life in the growing port city of Piraeus. It had the potential to speak directly to social and cultural history. But her book, it seems to me, is much better known among anthropologists than historians. So historians' problem with refugees is perplexing. One likely explanation, as has been said by other people, is a fixation, their fixation, with the nation state. But it still seems odd that historians have overlooked the connections between refugees and the great upheavals of war, revolution, decolonisation and state formation in the 20th century conceivably it reflected an assumption that any refugee crisis is a temporary blip and that things return to normal after a brief if painful interlude although this too is very odd given what is known about the enduring presence of refugee populations in Europe, in the Middle East, in South Asia, Southeast Asia and other parts of the world Another possible explanation is that many refugees had no wish or few opportunities to advertise their status and left few traces behind in the historical record. But as the Nakba demonstrates, there are rich resources, only that they've been exploited more by social scientists or literary scholars than by historians. And yet, it would be a mistake to dwell too long on the fact that historians have neglected refugees. I say this because refugee history is now becoming a bigger and more dynamic field. Whereas hitherto pioneering scholars in the UK such as Tony Kushner and Catherine Knox paid close attention to refugees who reached British shores, the focus of attention has now begun to broaden considerably. To take one example, although the centenary of the First World War has not so far been the occasion to devote attention to the phenomenon of pan-European population displacement, I know of at least one project currently underway that promises to bring this to the fore, making comparisons between different sites and between governmental and non-governmental practices that developed around an entirely unexpected crisis of mass displacement, which had immense political repercussions in terms of destabilising powerful continental empires and exposing fault lines in the state. And this collaborative research promises to illuminate not only hidden histories of refugees from Bulgaria to Belgium, but also the careers of humanitarian relief workers that were launched during the Great War. Likewise, the history of displaced persons in Europe has become a growth area since the 1990s, locating their experience in the history of post-1945 Germany and in the history of intergovernmental organisations. In fact, a plethora of new work points to a sea change in the historiography of 20th century refugee crises. At the risk of making invidious choices, I'd like to mention two studies that connect the experiences of refugees to broader questions in political, cultural and social history. Janet Chen's recent book on China under Japanese occupation and the aftermath of war shows how officials in Shanghai wrestled with the issue of definition. Who was a genuine refugee and who belonged to the category of beggar? Who had a valid claim on government support and who was a sponger? The stakes were considerable, not only for millions of Chinese displaced by the Japanese invasion and prolonged occupation, but also for the occupation regime that found itself caught up in a crisis of its own making. Or a second example is a body of work by Ilana Feldman, who has written about the difficult distinctions, as she puts it, in Gaza, in the aftermath of the Nakba, between those Palestinians who were recognized by UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works Agency, as refugees, and those who, as locals, fell outside the programs of organized relief. I find particularly helpful how she engages with the process of categorisation, how historically violent conflict has been just the starting point of the process of making the modern refugee, and how this is connected to the history of an entire society. So is there a case for refugee history, and what is it? Should refugee history be taken seriously in much the same way as historians began decades ago to address the history of the working class, of women, of slave populations? It's tempting to suggest that a closer focus on refugees will enlarge the scope of historiography and that that in itself would be a a positive development. And yet, getting to grips with marginal and dispossessed social groups is not just a matter of rescuing them for what Edward Thompson famously called the enormous condescension of posterity. Something more than history from below is required. This is partly a question of engaging with the complicated business of what Ian Hacking, taking his cue from Nietzsche, calls making up people – in the way that scholars such as Chen and Feldman have done. It's to acknowledge that refugees were historically embedded in larger frameworks of power. I want therefore to propose that refugee history must accept, but must also transcend the necessary purpose of hearing what refugees have to say. Refugee history, in other words, cannot just be about refugees. The history of refugees is bound up with a broader set of relations and practices which I've elsewhere characterised as refugiedom, being my translation of a Russian word that gained currency during the First World War. In that particular context, it directed attention to the emergence of a new social category that didn't correspond to existing categories of status and class in the Russian Empire. It was simultaneously a description of millions of people who'd been wrenched from their familiar moorings in 1915 and 16, but also an expression of the treatment, sometimes hostile, often demeaning, that was meted out to them by government officials and by host communities in which refugees settled. When I first encountered this term, it resonated because it neatly encapsulated the uncertainties and anxieties of Russian society and because it expressed the political critique being mounted against the Tsarist Russian state. The Russian word, "gegensfer" could not, however, be translated into English as refugeeus, which seemed to be to denote something more akin to a change in personality or a presumed change in personality. Refugedom was a more capacious but also an insistent term. It carried connotations of a new status, but also of a distinctive domain or sphere of practice. Refugeedom is a rather awkward word in the English language, but it finds echoes elsewhere, for example, in the work of Schechtman, who, of course, being Russian-Jewish and born in the late uh, 19th century and living in Russia during the First World War, certainly would have encountered it. So it's an awkward word, but I believe it does a good job in getting us to think about multiple relationships between refugees and relief workers those relationships that Ilana Feldman calls the humanitarian circuit. It also incorporates the changing manifestations of a refugee regime, taken to mean the principles, rules and practices adopted by government officials and others in order to manage refugees but my proposition is that refugeedom allows us to go even further by acknowledging the world that refugees have made as well as the world that has been made for them. In other words, it includes legal frameworks, bureaucratic instruments and humanitarian practices, whilst also enabling us to relate refugees' experiences, conduct and responses to those prevailing institutions and norms. Calling for a history of refugeedom, as well as a history of refugees is probably a roundabout way of saying that something more reflective and sophisticated is required of historians, namely that they incorporate a social and cultural history of refugees within systems of power. But this must be done in a way that doesn't see power flowing in just one direction. Refugeedom can be conceived as a system that governs but doesn't necessarily bind refugees in an inescapable vice. I particularly liked what anthropologist Iwa Ong writes in relation to Cambodian refugees who aligned their behaviour in order to maximise their suitability as candidates for admission to the United States. To quote... In official and public domains, refugees become subjects of norms, rules and systems, but they also modify practices and agendas while nimbly deflecting control and interjecting critique. The history of this agility is something that bears its own scrutiny. In the rewarding formulation of critical theorist Denise Riley. Quote, "...the members of an exhorted mass, whether of a race, a class, a nation, a bodily state, a sexual persuasion, are always apt to break out of its corrals to realign themselves elsewhere." End quote. This calls for the historian to identify the moments and uncover the causes of such an escape from reification, what Riley calls the extraordinary weight of characterisation. So under what conditions did refugees break free of the designation that they were assigned or perhaps espoused? How might refugiedom be a state of being in the world, a form of self-realisation, a badge of honour rather than a mark of shame? The history of mass population displacement in the 20th century suggests the need for a more nuanced approach to the construction and operation of refugiedom. Namely one that acknowledges but does not privilege the exercise of external power over refugees. And one that entertains the possibility that there is more to the history of people who become refugees than the fact of their displacement. I want at this juncture to suggest that the main problem is not a dearth of historical research as such. But rather a lack of integration of those studies that have already appeared And this is what I sought to provide in in my recent book on the making of the modern refugee, though it's left one reviewer wondering, quote, what is distinctive about or what is the value added of a historical approach? That's Michael Barnett. For the sake of clarification, I should say that rather than pile one episode on top of another, I wanted to produce a history of displacement across space and time that was attentive to connections between the ideas, actions, and trajectories of refugees and relief workers. At the very least, it was an attempt to overcome what Mabuba Rahman and Willem van Skendel have called the academic partition, which is by no means limited to the studies of the Indian subcontinent that they've written about. On reflection, I think I could have done more to establish these connections, so I'd like to try and take this opportunity to try and do something of that here. But I should warn you that what follows isn't a chronological account or an analysis of changes in the 20th century refugee regime, a more specialised topic that's already being rewritten by historians and social scientists, many of them connected to the Refugee Studies Centre. In terms of spatial connections, the global crisis of displacement during the 1940s is one obvious case in point, since it embraced enormous upheavals in Europe, the Middle East, South Asia, and the Far East. And Joseph Schechtman, who I mentioned earlier, uh, did something of that. His Geographic Overview, published in 1963... Drew what he saw as a a sharp distinction between those who were deemed national refugees, resettled and integrated, in his words, by their respective co-national governments, acting in the spirit of fraternal compassion and solidarity, and those who were not and not granted citizenship. In the former category, national refugees, he put partition refugees, German expellees, Palestinians in Jordan, various colonial repatriates, and refugees in Korea and Vietnam. But although his distinction between national and non-national refugees was important in terms of the legal institutional matrix, it said nothing about how these arrangements and relationships worked out in practice. And it was left to historians and anthropologists to provide this kind of social and cultural history. And in so doing, they heavily qualified Schechtman's over-optimistic assumptions, for example, in relation to the so-called rehabilitation of refugees in the Indian subcontinent. Recent scholarship, still in the 1940s era, recent scholarship has emphasised the emergence of a series of regional refugee regimes, of which the post-1945 framework fashioned by the UN in 1951 constituted but one element. Other frameworks had already been put in place to cope with the repatriation and then the resettlement of Europe's displaced persons under the auspices of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, UNRWA, and the International Refugee Organization, respectively or frameworks put in place to deal with the aftermath of partition in 1947, with the Palestinian refugee crisis in 1948, and in China, where the extraordinary crisis of displacement in the Far East in the late 1930s and 1940s occurred amidst mass violence, wholesale economic destruction, economic reconstruction, revolution, and state formation. As the war with Japan and the Japanese occupation came to an end, China oversaw the mass expulsion of Japanese, overseas Chinese sought repatriation, and the revolution of 1949 generated an influx of refugees to Hong Kong. Among these demographically significant episodes, historians have also written about less familiar instances. For example, Julia Edwards draws attention to enforced displacement by the British of the population of Banaba, or Ocean Island, to Fiji at the end of 1945, a journey of 2,000 miles across the Pacific, and justified by the colonial authorities on the grounds that phosphate mining had rendered their small island home uninhabitable. So a substantial body of new work has enlarged our knowledge very considerably, giving us insights into the relief programs undertaken not just by different UN bodies, but by a range of other actors, including international secular and faith-based NGOs, as well as indigenous agencies. But is there a risk that we've ended up with a series of regionally differentiated and disconnected crises and responses? To address this issue, it's worth thinking beyond the regime or regimes to ask how and in what terms refugees and non-refugees made connections between one crisis and another. In other words, to think about a social and cultural history as well as the history of institutions and international law. I'm not concerned here with the references that refugees sometimes made to biblical stories of flight or, as they did in France in 1940, referring to the barbarian invasions of the 4th century. Nor can I go into the use or abuse of history by government officials in Britain, Canada, Australia and elsewhere who proclaim their proud tradition of welcome invariably a smokescreen or justification for imposing tough restrictions on those seeking asylum. Rather, I'd like to draw attention to the claim, for example, of Eritrean and Sudanese asylum seekers um, to demand a sympathetic hearing from Israeli officials on the grounds that not so long ago you were refugees as well. Although Moriel Ram and Haim Jacobi point out that this plea has fallen on deaf ears, it illustrates my point that refugees have sometimes done better than historians in joining the dots. Politics of comparison also emerges in the invitation extended by an Indian government official to a European audience to imagine, quote, what would have happened if instead of a few hundred thousand people who fled from Europe to Britain during the dark days between 1934 and 1939, the number of refugees had included the whole population of Norway or Denmark. He went on to add that then we can get some idea of the problem which faced this country in 1947, which he was keen to emphasise meant a transfusion of new blood. The whole body of the country, he said, has benefited from it. Likewise, the historian Shadunath Sarkar told an audience of East Bengal refugees in 1948 that they were welcome in India because they could help revive the local economy. And he referred to the positive contribution made by Huguenots in Britain and Puritan settlers in North America. He urged West Bengalists in turn to, quote, graft this rich racial, racial branch upon its old decaying trunk and rise to a new era of prosperity and power. But Sarkar didn't leave matters there. In a striking analogy with recent events, he also praised new Jewish settlers in Palestine who would, in his words, provide a spark of light in the midst of the mess of Muslim misgovernment and stagnation. We must, he went on, make our West Bengal what Palestine under Jewish rule will be, a light in the darkness of medieval ignorance and theocratic bigotry. We could also think harder about about relief workers who travelled from one site of displacement to another and about the doctrines that governed their behaviour. What happens, in other words, if we begin to think about the knowledge they acquired and transferred across space and time? Until such time as we have a fuller prosopography, we're left with scattered and fragmentary biographies of relief workers who began their careers with powerful agencies such as Near East Relief and the American Relief Administration in the early 1920s and who turn up later in India, Palestine or Germany working for the United Nations for care or for other agencies. a later generation of Lutheran relief workers who operated in India in the early 1960s and who complained about the apathy of refugees in Bengal and deemed them to constitute a quote, hard core of refugees, implicitly comparing them to displaced persons in post-war Germany who were described in the same terms and with whose history they would have been familiar. And there's also something to be said for a history of refugeedom that draws attention to the changing meanings that were imparted to a capacious term such as rehabilitation. Relief agencies such as Near East Relief and the American Relief Administration appear to have employed it intermittently in the early 1920s. But it was institutionalised during the 1940s by the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration and by the ministries of rehabilitation established by the new governments of India and Pakistan, respectively. Tracing the genealogy of rehabilitation, not just its adoption, but its selective deployment, seems to me a productive way of making connections. A history of rehabilitation will tell us something about the professional expertise deployed by social workers and psychologists, for example, seeking to change refugees' behaviour, and also about how they construed refugees as prospective citizens in some settings, but not in others. We could then go on to see how and why the appeal of rehabilitation appears to have diminished in relation to refugees and humanitarianism uh, during the final third of the 20th century. In the time remaining, I simply want to acknowledge that history matters profoundly to refugees in at least two senses. The first is that it influences, although it may not determine, the routes taken by refugees at times of crisis. Refugees from the Spanish Civil War followed the tracks made by earlier generations of labour migrants who moved to France to pick grapes and harvest sugar beet, or who'd migrated to Argentina. Refugees who fled from north to south Vietnam in the mid-1950s repeated journeys made by family members in the past. Refugees from the bitter civil war in Mozambique sought sanctuary in Malawi to which they were affiliated by virtue of peacetime migration during the 1950s. Bosnian Muslim women who were attacked by Serb militias during the war over the carcass of Yugoslavia found refuge in Slovenia because their menfolk traditionally sought temporary work in Ljubljana and other Slovenian towns and cities. So the trajectories of displaced people rarely had a random character but were instead associated with historic ties, journeys and diasporic formations. Literally a kind of path dependency. The second element in a refugee-centred history is about memory and forgetting. It's readily known and understood that refugees have often invested in commemorative work, not least by emphasising the importance of the temporal rupture associated with displacement. But it's also important not to overlook what's excised from historical accounts. Refugees can airbrush from history former neighbours who turned upon them at the moment of displacement and whose positive place was too disturbing to include in the new historical narrative. Following the Greek-Turkish population exchange of 1923, the neighbourliness shown by Orthodox and Muslim villagers to one another was rewritten as a history of mutual disdain. Hindu refugees who arrived from Pakistan to Delhi in September 1947 and who moved into Muslim houses in the city refused to acknowledge its Muslim past. And the same is true of Muslims who wrote the multicultural elements of Lahore out of history and thereby constructed a historical account in which ethnic and religious violence became predictable. The displaced might think of themselves as a spectral presence, as in the memorial books of Armenians, Jews and Palestinians, but they have turned former neighbours into ghosts as well. This is about rewriting the past for present purposes, a politics of of negation and oblivion. What then does history have to say about and to refugees? (coughs) Reduced to its bare essentials, the answer is that history provides both perspective and corrective. Perspective, because the refusal of history suggests an unwillingness to understand either the root causes of displacement or the discursive registers in which responses to crises are articulated, a dis- discount even something as fundamental as the routes that were available to refugees seeking to move to a place of safety. Corrective, in the sense that history can expose misconceptions, enabling certain claims, for example, about the scale or complexity of refugee crises, to be subjected to closer scrutiny. For example, according to the World Health Organization, quote, political turbulence in many many regions of the world has increased the number of displaced people fleeing complex emergencies and disasters. And UNHCR officials argue along the same lines. This, to me, is a misconception because it implies that previous emergencies were somehow more straightforward to address, not not complex. But the aftermath of the Russian Revolution and Civil War unquestionably qualifies as a complex emergency considering the extent of famine and demographic disaster that afflicted millions of people in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus and Poland, not to mention Armenia, between 1917 and 1922. This crisis prompted the creation of the first international refugee regime under the auspices of the League of Nations and Nansen would have smiled ruefully at the suggestion that it was anything other than complex. Its repercussions stretched to China, South America and Western Europe and it engaged the attention of governments, NGOs and private individuals. The distinguished international social worker Herta Krauss drew upon elements of this history in order to compile a training handbook in 1944 for Quaker and other relief workers as they prepared to cross the Atlantic to the devastated continent of Europe. And there's no doubting her strong sense of the importance of historical comparison for contemporary relief practice. To sum up, I offer white what might seem a series of rather trite observations to this audience, but in mitigation I plead that they are not acknowledged so well in public debate. Namely, that modern refugees do not just happen as a result of war or other calamity, but also the product of state-making, and that refugees also help constitute the state. They're also fashioned and fashion themselves socially and discursively, to write the history of refugees is to write about the construction and operationalization of a category of concern, which has to be problematized and historicized to understand how refugees have, in Ian Hacking's words, become moving targets. At the risk of sounding pompous or unrealistic, we therefore need something more akin to a total history that integrates history from below with other domains including the history of law, geopolitics, and the history of doctrines, such as development or rehabilitation. The historian is also well-placed to demonstrate how the past is a resource for refugees who seek to locate themselves spatially and also temporally. Refugees, in other words, have often been adept at making historical connections and comparisons. Sometimes this has problematic consequences for other groups in society, namely when rival claims about suffering and restitution are advanced, the mythico-histories that Lisa Malkey has emphasised in her work and that could contribute to stoking conflict. It would strike entirely the wrong note to say that history is for that reason too important to be left to refugees. Rather, I hope to have done enough to suggest some reasons why academic historians have a part to play in those conversations. And to end with a hopeful thought, it may be that the ongoing drama now being played out in the Mediterranean will not be consigned to oblivion, but will instead be deemed worthy of attention by the next generation of historians. Perhaps they are in this very room. Thank you. Information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre. Please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.